Rising workloads and understaffing are causing frustration for employees at the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA employees and union leaders urged agency officials and Congress to make some serious changes to the agency's workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees, which represents nearly 8,000 EPA employees, just held a rally outside the agency's D.C. headquarters. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman was there, and she joins me now. Drew, you're getting to be a rally regular here for the uh, different union-backed issues in town. What are the concerns now with EPA? What do AFGE and the employees say is the basic problem? Tom, it's kind of a combination of two issues. They're saying that they are facing kind of a lagging number of staff or employees in the agency compared with a growing workload that is largely coming from added funds under the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So specifically during fiscal 2022, EPA had about 14,500 employees, and that is a 20% decline from the highest workforce numbers that the agency had. Back in 1999, they had about 18,000 employees. So there has been a little bit of improvement in staff numbers in just the past couple of years, but this is not enough to, as AFGE says, as some employees are saying, to really tackle the increasing workload from these new bills. AFGE Council 238 President Marie Owens-Powell said that just bringing staff on board is also not going to be enough. We are facing a staffing crisis. We need to not only hire new staff, but the bigger problem from our point of view is retaining the staff that we have. We have 3,000 employees that have more than 30 years of experience. Of those 3,000, 1,500 have 35 plus years of experience. We simply cannot afford to have that wealth of knowledge walk out the door. Right. And that's something that we're seeing in a lot of agencies, you might say. And what about the employees themselves? What was their sentiment? A lot of the EPA employees who were at the rally and that I spoke to said that they are feeling, I guess, sentiments of burnout, exhaustion, just trying to deal with these increasing workloads. And some were considering leaving for other agencies or the private sector just because the work was just piling up. I spoke to an EPA employee, Teddy Bruce, who attended the rally. I can speak from experience in my office. There are people doing the jobs of one and a half to two employees on a regular basis and no uh, relief in sight. There's certainly significant burnout in a lot of employees and exponentially more talk of transitioning to different agencies. Yeah, well, there's no fun in working when the to-do list seems to be never going away and you can never get on top of that pile. And so what about the agency? What does management at EPA say now that they're, you know, three years into the Biden administration? Management said that they are trying to work with these union partners to try to listen to their concerns and make adjustments wherever needed. AFGE held this sort of week-long rally in D.C. to uh, try to raise concerns about the staffing issues at the agency. And the a spokesperson from EPA told me that agency managers met with union leaders during that week-long rally. The agency is also currently onboarding about 1,800 employees that would be to support the legislative work under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's adding billions and billions of dollars of Uh, funding and therefore work at EPA. And those 1,800 new employees would be on top of the 
15,000 roughly EPA staff that are appropriated for fiscal 2023. Although AFGE has said that there are staff who are looking to switch agencies or walk out the door, EPA managers and the spokesperson I talked to, they pointed to data from the Partnership for Public Service that showed that EPA attrition levels were actually among the lowest government-wide over the past couple of years. Sure. Some of it's very specialized work. And, you know, probably the agency would like to have more people to relieve that workload, but you can hire the people you're appropriated and legislated to have as billets, and pretty much no agency can go beyond that. And AFGE was also talking about career ladders and pay, too, which is different issues from the workload. What happened there? So AFGE leaders that I spoke to, they said that the way that the agency is basically ranking or setting up the career ladders for some more tenured employees is different from those who are new or just coming on board. So for example, inspectors at EPA, those who have been around for a while can reach a maximum of GS 13 or 14 on the general schedule. But when new inspectors are coming in, they're being capped at GS-12 or GS-13. So that, of course, impacts pay for those positions. And it's not just inspectors. It's several types of positions at EPA. And the union and some employees that I spoke to said that basically that is causing some retention issues and trying to issues with trying to bring people on board as well. I spoke with Matt Costelli at the rally. He is a legislative advocate for AFGE Local 3607, which represents EPA employees in Denver. Our pay is shrinking, not just because of inflation, but because new employees' career ladders and salaries are being capped lower than their peers doing the same work. So same work, different pay. It's not fair, it's not right. And we need to be able to attract, retain, Uh, the best of the best to do what we do, right? We address safe drinking water, clean air, uh, addressing Superfund sites. And to do that, we need more staff that are paid fairly. Sounds like an omnibus rally there, because also on the agenda was remote work. And I think we know how AFGE stands on that. They are pretty much backing remote work when possible, aren't they? Absolutely. AFGE has spoken up advocating not just for EPA remote work, but for all agencies. And they've also criticized legislation like the Show Up Act. So this is not a surprise that they're also pushing for remote work and telework opportunities for EPA employees The union actually negotiated with management a new contract provision that would allow remote work when it could be approved by a manager and an employee requested a remote work position. And there are a lot of employees that are making requests, but AFGE says they um, are sometimes being dismissed without a good reason for management. But as I said, AFGE is pushing for more of these opportunities that, and they argue that it worked very well for EPA during COVID. All right. So some real tough issues there between management and the workers at EPA. What comes next? They are still working through contract negotiations for their collective bargaining agreement. There's a couple areas where they're struggling, such as the remote work aspect and the issue with promotions and career ladders. But it seems like from both sides, labor and management, they're both saying that they do want to have a positive partnership here and they're trying to kind of work together to get through some of these issues. Owens Powell, who's the Council 238 president at AFGE, she said it's really going to be about working with the agency. 
We made it clear to them this is not a protest. We are here to help the agency and move the agency forward. If the agency fails, we fail. We truly want to partner with them. We truly want to move this forward. The way to do it is to help our employees. All right. So the contract will tell all, won't it? Yeah, well, we'll see how things progress from here. But it seems like, as I said, both kind of want to move in this positive direction. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. 
So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving 
with the correct conclusion. He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.